Hello and welcome to Downstream, the Navarra Media interview series where if politics is downstream from culture, we're basically the Becton Works. Today I'm here with Dr. Kojo Karam, boxer, breaker of hearts and teacher <laughs> of law to talk about his new book on Commonwealth Britain and the aftermath of empire. Kojo has also written books on the global colour line and the war on drugs. He is a lecturer at Birkbeck University and he is actually also a one-time amateur boxer. Um, we'll see if that comes up. Thank you so much for having me, Ash. Um, so this is quite different from your previous work, which has tended to focus on drugs. Mm-hmm. Have you had that focus on drugs predominantly because you're from Liverpool? <laughs> um not necessarily. I mean, it doesn't, the kind of interest You're in empire. You're not saying no, though. No, but the interest in empire also, I think, has a lot to do with growing up within Liverpool and Merseyside. You know, I moved there when I was seven. And um, the reality is, as well as thinking, where does wealth come from when you're in this area? You know, some of it might come from particular um illegal trafficking but a lot of it as well when you look at the grand old buildings when you look at a lot of the famous names that are on those buildings in places like liverpool in bristol in glasgow you recognize you're like oh who built this giant building oh another slave trader (laughs) another imperialist and um i think that that kind of reckoning with that is something that definitely influenced my interest in empire perhaps maybe earlier than i thought but also um the kind of consequences of the aftermath of empire for places like Liverpool. This idea, you know, that was famous in Thatcher of putting Liverpool into managed decline and um, the kind of consequences that it's had to the politics of these areas. Um, So whilst Liverpool is often seen as um, kind of bastion of kind of labour radicalism, the actual um, kind of area where my family now live in Southport is the only city in Merseyside, the only seat in Merseyside that at the last election went to um, a Conservative. So it's the so one... So you took your eye off the ball. <laughs> yeah, it's the one break You moved of the... to London <laughs> exactly. and then suddenly it all fell yeah, apart. Yeah, it's the one break of the Red Wall in Merseyside. And so thinking about the way in which mm. that politics of... Um, inequality and identity kind of was contested in that 2019 election, I think made me try to wrestle with these questions of what do we mean when we talk about empire? Do we simply mean culture? Do we simply mean race? Do we simply mean identity? Or do we actually mean what empire was all about, which was about the material resources? I mean, I want to get to that in a second. And I was kind of half joking about the drugs in Liverpool thing, because it struck me when I was on my way here, that when you grow up in a big British city, whether that's London or Manchester or Liverpool, you do see firsthand that there is not a neat dividing line between the illicit economy, uh, the violent economy and the reputable economy of the establishment. If you want to look at the relationship between drug trafficking and the city of London, you only have to take one look at HSBC's finances Mm -hmm. to see how that money's been cleaned up. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question that I'm asking here is, has your interest in the relationships between capital, violence, trafficking of controlled substances, the role of those controlled substances in the functioning of empire, does that have some roots in your own upbringing, the places that you saw, the things that you saw? Um, Well, I think that the connection between kind of violence, empire, and the kind of illicit economy, I think is something that was really driven by research into drug policy and the law, and going back to the kind of history of drug policy, looking at um, the way in which during the era of empire, you know, 
the trade in drugs was completely legitimate <laughs> with, you know, the UK being one of the largest drug traffickers in the world. We look at the history of the opium wars. Yeah, Brent says you will have this opium, <laughs> yeah, exactly. whether you like it or exactly. not. Exactly, and that being this facilitator towards um, world-changing events like the seizure of Hong Kong and the way that that has been largely edited out of the national history. Like, this is really not really understood by the national memory so much that when Tony Blair went to facilitate the handover of Hong Kong back to China, he actually says in his autobiographies, he goes, um, you know, the Chinese premier is talking to him about, well, we hope we can put this whole history behind us. And he goes, I have no idea what that history was about. I don't know <laughs> about the opium wars. He doesn't know why he was there. He doesn't know why Hong Kong became a British territory. And so the relationship between the kind of illicit economy and the violence of the 19th century and the amnesia of empire that we have today, I think is something that we can connect through drug policy, but it also connects through so many other elements, through ideas around commercial um, enterprises, through the role of the state and through ideas around the border. I mean, there's one way of looking at the study of history. One way is that you're trying to gain some kind of connections with facts. And then another way of looking at it is that it is a cleanup operation, <laughs> right? You edit out the stuff you don't like. So if someone turned to you and said, how would you describe what it means to be British? What would be your response to that question? Um, I mean, I think there's a difference between what people would want the idea of Britain to be, so the way that it's projected primarily by the elite, primarily by those who kind of benefited from the architecture of empire, um, which would be around, you know, this certain idea of um, a kind of what people might describe as a kind of traditional elite culture. So, you know, the kind of image of Britain that a Jacob Rees-Mogg might promote, <laughs> um, for example. And I think that's quite different from a kind of subterranean idea of Britishness, which has a lot to do with um, kind of, we can see that reflected in mass culture. We can see that reflected in the spread of popular music that has emerged through Britain following the end of empire. We can see that in kind of Britain's artistic and literary and comedy traditions. And I think that those two are actually quite opposed to each other often at the times. Um, we might take someone like a Jacob Rees-Mogg who will present himself as a defender of empire, um, say when there was the whole kind of argument around the playing of Rule Britannia or the mm. last night of the proms, and he would present himself as, you know, the defender of empire. He actually goes to the House of Commons and says, I'm going to play Rule Britannia in defiance of the BBC, <laughs> as though this is something that's being banned by the entire of the country. And Watching that, I just thought it's not something that like is being banned by the country. It's just something that no one listens to. Like nobody's playing Royal Britannia at their house parties. Like this isn't <laughs> the representation of British culture that you think that it is. You're saying you've never played Royal Britannia at one of your house parties. I have, but it tends to clear out the house party afterwards. <laughs> it's not very probably then you've got to, you know, play stuff that people actually do listen to. Um, and I think what was so interesting about trying to make that kind of cultural representation of British culture the main version of this country's narrative is that it allows someone like Rees-Mogg to present himself as a patriot when if we look at the kind of material and financial basis of his own relationship to the country, we can see that his wealth funds and his um, investment firms are based in the Cayman Islands, based in Singapore, are removed from the actual politics of the British nation itself. And so that's really what I wanted to try and do with this book, was to try and shift the conversation around empire from the kind of cultural um, sphere, where a lot of these arguments are mm. being had, to the kind of material and economic sphere, because I think that actually changes our idea of what it means to be British and who counts within that larger politics. And in terms of that commercial organisation, 
your argument in this book is that it's really central to what we think of as Britain at all. Because elsewhere in an article you write, it's commonly said that Britain had an empire, but it would be more true to say that an empire had Britain. Could you explain what you meant by that? Yeah, um, well, I think that we need to recognise how imperative the kind of imperial project was to the actual formation of the British nation. Um, By the time we get the 1707 Acts of the Union, Britain or England already has colonies in Jamaica and Barbados. It already has the Virginia slave colonies in the USA. Scotland also had its own attempt at a colonial project in Panama through New Caledonia, as it was called. And, you know, you read someone like a Robert Burns, and he would say that it's the failure of that imperial project that actually led Scottish elites to actually join up in unification with England creating this idea of Britain. So Scotland was like, wait a minute, <laughs> let me get him in the slave money. <laughs> and also just like there's a great ins- insolvency policy, this kind of commercial operation of mm. empire. And this driver of unifying the actual politic of Britain is something that we can see reflected in our constitutional structure and in the kind of fragmentation that the constitutional structure has had in the years following official formal decolonization. If we think about the idea of the empire having had Britain as a nation state, then we can understand a little bit better why we might see that nation state fragmenting in the aftermath of that empire. So did the British empire ever really end or did it just find a new form to embody itself in? Well, I mean, I think that I would say that it, it, I mean, it did end. I don't want to like dismiss the significance of the decolonization struggles of the 1940s, the 1950s, the 1960s, um, where, um, you know, huge amounts of the world turned from being coloured in red in those kind of formal maps to being their own sovereign nation states, their own flags, their own national anthems, their own ideas of, um, you know, democracy that was being exercised over there. But what happened, I think, was a real shift and a transition between the kind of two elements of the imperial project. One was territorial expansion, but people don't just go all around the world in order to conquer territory. You know, people don't go all around the world. <laughs> but they're like, we just really like this hill. Just a little wonderful hill, you know. People don't go all around the world to spread democracy and literature. They're not like, you know, I've sailed for six months because I've got this really good Jane Austen book. I want you to read it. No. <laughs> like, it goes over there because empire is about the accumulation, expropriation, and transfer of resources across the globe. So you're telling me it's nothing to do with the fact that British people are just morally superior to everyone else? Just wanted to spread democracy, the good word of democracy. No, all empire are about the accumulation of wealth. Britain happened to be the largest, richest, and most expansive empire, and the one, the creator, the architecture for our current contemporary commercial capitalist world. And that second element of empire is what was protected in the aftermath of empire. Um, People like the political economist Quince Labodian talks about this idea of encasement that happened after decolonization. And so once people realized that all these countries were probably not going to stay sub- subject to Britain for a long time, you know, following the independence of India, then becomes the question of, well, if I'm a company and my business is based upon the transfer of wealth across all these different borders, all these different borders having all these different democratic governments, that's a problem to me. They can all add different laws. They can all add different elements of control. And so what happened was this mass project of encasing the transfer of wealth and the financial element of imperialism, which has a lot to do with why we have the economic struggles that we're facing in 2022. 
So there's one way of looking at the project of empire, and it is a predominantly military territorial exploit. You've got your gunpowder, you've got your germs, you've got your ships. And then there's what you foreground in this book, which is empire as a commercial enterprise. So what were the institutions involved in that commercial enterprise and what happened to them after Mm. empire formally Mm. at least wound up? Well, I think that's one of the big kind of defining characteristics of the British Empire over and above a lot of its other European imperial rivals was the really prominent role the private corporations played in the expansion of empire. We can think of the East India Company probably most famously, but also the Hudson Bay Company in North America, the Royal Niger Company, the Royal African Company, all these other companies that we never talk about and we just try and put in the quiet corner of history but these are significant, almost de facto sovereign entities all around the world. And what happened to a lot of these companies, when we think about things like the Anglo-Iranian oil company, they simply mutated into a different form following their initial confrontation with the Mossadegh government in Iran, which led to a really kind of crude force of encasement this time, <laughs> just going in there and having a little coup d'etat. <laughs> exactly. They decided... So why did they try and get rid of um, Mossadegh just for viewers who might be unfamiliar? Okay, so the Anglo-Iranian oil company started by William Knox Darcy um, in the early 20th century. Um, kind of cultivated the oil refineries in the Abadan region in what, you know, people used to call Persia at that time. Um, This became part of kind of the informal empire of Britain. And um, they were obviously benefiting greatly from the economic wealth that was being accumulated on the soil. Um, Following the election of Mohammed Mossadegh in the 1950s, as part of this kind of expansion of, of kind of what, was referred to as kind of third world nationalism at that moment, Mossadegh sought to try and use the resources in the Abadan region for the construction of a, essentially a kind of a welfare state, you know, investment in housing, investment in health, investment in education for the Iranian people. The Anglo-Iranian oil company were not happy with this idea. (laughs) This is not what they wanted. What do you mean this is your oil? (laughs) Exactly. And so, That led to an obviously immediate confrontation between the kind of property rights of this colonial company and the sovereignty of this third world nation, as was the language at the time. The UK government, even though it was run by Clement Attlee, who, as you know, people on the left and a lot of the viewers will know, is seen as the most progressive prime minister in British history. Um, You know, his government, the establishment of the National Health Service, building of council houses, um, you know, and the nationalization of a lot of failing industries themselves mm. brought into national government didn't see um, their <laughs> equivalent um, brothers in arms in the Mossadegh regime. What do you regime. mean you want to nationalize <laughs> oil for your own welfare state? Wait a minute. <laughs> exactly. And so what it led to was this massive confrontation where there was an attempt to try and get a UN resolution to launch a war against Iran. There was an attempt to take Iran to the ICJ. Both of those failed. At a time when, you know, Labour government still bothered with getting the UN resolution Absolutely. before invading an oil-rich <laughs> <Yeah>. Eastern country. Before <laughs> they just do it directly, exactly. Tony Blair was like, we're not doing that. That didn't work last time. We're going to try something else. And so so um, what they ended up doing was simply funding and supporting a coup d'etat, and this has all been declassified. Um, with the United States, 2017, this all kind of came out being declassified. Um, there was a coup d'etat against Mossadegh. Mossadegh was placed in house arrest. We ended up dying. The oil was transferred back to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, which is now was 
first British Petroleum and now is simply BP. <laughs> and um, as people will know, as we're all kind of wrestling with this oncoming energy crisis at the moment, the chief executive of BP very recently went on record describing how this energy crisis is turning his company into a giant cash machine. And so <laughs> hooray for him. And um, the UK government is very reluctant to listen to calls for placing a kind of windfall tax on BP whilst everyday people see their bills going higher and higher on a monthly basis. And so what I really tried to do in the book was try to disrupt this idea that criticism of British imperialism and criticism of the aftermath of British imperialism was criticism of everyday British people and was actually something that was kind of an attack on everyday British people. Mm. That's what your Jacob Rees-Mogg's and those want to tell you. But the reality is the support of BP in the aftermath of um, the Mossadegh attempt to nationalize them and supporting the Anglo-Iranian oil company against third world nationalism has not, as we can see right now, worked out very well for the everyday British person who is seeing their oil bills go through the roof whilst BP record record profits. I mean, this is something which again and again comes up through the book, this idea of the boomerang moment. So something that happens in the former colonies, some version of that ends up being inflicted on British people back at home. Mm -hmm. So the example you give with the Mossadegh government, the minute you have this idea that a big energy corporation like, you know, uh, Anglo-Iranian oil, later BP, that you can't nationalise that. Mm -hmm. You can't bring that under national sovereignty. That's not going to be an idea which simply stays in Iran. That's also going to be something which is at play here and elsewhere, which mm -hmm. means that we can't get a grip on our energy bills. Um, another instance is when you talk about, um, you know, structural readjustment programmes and the IMF. So could you maybe give you as a bit of an idea of this boomerang concept. You know, austerity is not invented in England and yet it finds its way here. <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Um, so the boomerang idea, something I can't take kind of credit for, it's something that I borrowed from a brilliant kind of post-colonial thinker, Amy Césaire, um, who discuss this idea of, well, what happens in the colonies doesn't stay in the colonies. It actually feeds its way and bleeds back into Europe itself. And this idea that we don't need to worry about what goes on in Ghana or Nigeria or Jamaica or India, because they're all developing nations. They're all behind us in this kind of linear trajectory of history. is something that blinds us to then when we turn around and see um, things like austerity being implemented, the inability to exercise sovereign control over kind of, you know, mass multinational corporations. When we ask ourselves, you know, where's our sovereignty gone? Can we take back control? We don't realize that that control was taken through this object, <laughs> through this process of um, undermining sovereignty within the developing world. Argentina which, just which, cackling to absolutely. itself like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> which then leads to the undermining of sovereignty um, over here in the UK. And I think that the example that I mentioned of structural adjustment programs is a really kind of clear example of that. And it's, you know, something that we can look at the experience of one of the countries that have had the most structural adjustment programs, also one of the countries that's had the longest kind of interwoven history with Britain, Jamaica. You know, we see this as this, you know, tropical island distant where we go for a little summer holidays you guys are the great dance <laughs> exactly you know this has got nothing really to do with why our political and economic economic system has taken the form that it has today but when we look at what happened in the 1970s under the prime the, the premiership of michael manley who 
upon being elected in Jamaica, try to create not only a kind of social democratic welfare state within Jamaica, but also try to create what he called the new international economic order all across the developing world through the United Nations, which they had a resolution passed, which when you read today, still looks remarkable. It talks about um, each country having permanent sovereignty over its own national resources. It talks about the control of transnational corporations. Mm. It talks about the right to food being you know, um, concretized within international law. And the um, response to that was through the weaponization of third world debt and through the implementation of structural adjustment programs, which meant the IMF and the World Bank would allow these countries to take loans, but on the condition that they privatize their public resources, that they attracted foreign investment, that they weakened labor organizing rights and unions. And all of these elements of the structural adjustment program didn't simply stay in Jamaica, but they started to bleed their way back into the way that we're able to control government, control companies and um, exercise our rights here in the UK. A kind of really crude example of it is with the um, now increasing reference to the idea of free ports and the expansion mm. of free ports all over, um, you know, the left behind places in the United Kingdom. I mean, this is something that was a necessary part of structural adjustment programs, not just in Jamaica, but in a lot of other territories across the world. So a free port is like a geographically distinct location, which is like deregulated, yeah. low tax. Yeah, right. It means you can have the flow of goods and capital yeah. uh, made easier because essentially the usual sort of um, checks and tariffs won't apply in those places. So that'd mean like you'd turn Blackpool into a tax haven. Exactly. You'd basically create offshore, offshore elements in onshore territories. And, you know, this is something that isn't unfamiliar to the kind of British aftermath of empire because you know, we might look at the Cayman Islands or British Virgin Islands. Or so, so all why, these other territories. Why are so many tax havens British overseas territories? Um, I think that we need to remember that the emergence of the offshore world is a response to changes in the offshore, onshore world. And so, you know, when you have the onshore world becoming more democratic when you have the expansion of sovereignty all around the world, then you have people who do want wealth to try and avoid increasing taxes, increasing labor demands, um, looking for alternatives. And so we can look at the kind of history of somewhere like the Cayman Islands, which in 1960 was seen as this kind of mosquito infested backwater of the British Empire that was even governed as part of Jamaica, wasn't even governed as its own independent colony. But with Jamaica transitioning towards independence, we then have this construction of somewhere like the Cayman Islands as a place through which global capital can rest and hide from the increasing sovereignty all around the world. And so we have the lowering of tax. We have the creation of secrecy um, jurisdictions legislation that allows people to not have their public ownership being um, made public and being able to be recognized. We have all of these issues that facilitate the encasing of capitalism mm. from sovereign control all around the world. And so when we have something like the 2008 financial crash and we have this debate around, oh, well, can't we respond to the shortfall in government wealth through increasing taxation on your Goldman Sachs and your BPs and your Vodafones? The immediate response that you get is, well, if you try and do that, there will simply be capital flight to the offshore world. And this is something that has been very familiar in the developing world since mm. the 1980s and now is starting to become an increasing um, 
point of discussion over here. It seems so weird to me that the argument against taxing BP or Google or Apple here in the UK is that they'll move to a British overseas territory. <laughs> because if we don't have sovereignty there, who does? I mean, this is the kind of trick that the kind of overseas territory offshore world has played on the general public for the last, you know, 50 years. You know, we talk about places like the Cayman Islands or the British Virgin Islands, again, like they're these distant tropical paradises that have no connection to the UK. And if companies set up there and they're removed from there, then, you know, that's it, the money's gone. There's no way of being able to get it back. But the reality is these are British overseas territories. There's a two-tier system of governance in there where a lot of the domestic stuff is governed over by a local governor, but the overall sovereignty remains with Westminster and they still decide things like defence and again, overall kind of control of these systems. And so what happens when things go wrong and companies end up embedding their wealth in these countries is that the kind of overseas territories and the Westminster government basically do a game of it was him and point to each other at the same time as though they have no control over it. And this was really kind of made clear when in the kind of aftermath of 2008, there was a lot more interest in the offshore world, the release of the Panama Papers and all of the following discussion that came after that. And the British Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, made extensive comments about the impossibility of being able to intervene in these overseas territories. Otherwise, that would be, you know, aggressive um, actions from Westminster. And then it became relevant that another reason why he might not want to intervene in these overseas territories was because he actually had own <laughs> holdings that were based in these overseas territories through his family holdings of Blair Moore um, through his father. And so, you know, this kind of... He's like, this is completely outside of my control, <laughs> my own money. <laughs> exactly. This kind of um, intimate connection between um, the... British state and the kind of British elite and the offshore world is something that I think changes our ideas of what counts as corruption when we think mm. about this idea of corruption around the world. Corruption is often associated simply with African and Latin American countries and their kind of Don't incompetent Don't forget rulers. Bangladesh, please. <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean, this is not what, you know, David Cameron himself didn't forget that mm. when he said to the Queen, oh, you know, we've got people from Afghanistan and Nigeria coming over, very corrupt countries. And, you know, I mean, the recent Greensill incident <laughs> might tell us that he has his own understanding of what corruption is. You do not as. have to explain corruption <laughs> to the British royal family. <laughs> you know, um, so I think that when we try and think about these offshore world, we need to remember that Westminster can intervene in them. It's done it already with mm. an intervention in the Turk and Caicos Islands. Um, it's obviously with the Chagos Islands in a much more kind mm. of tragic history um, with people being displaced from there in order to be able to set up a military base for the United States. And so there is an ability to intervene in these countries and there is an ability to great, create greater pressure for them to change their kind of offshore jurisdictional arrangement. But at the moment, it benefits Westminster because it means that these places get a lot of foreign investment. They're able to um, not have to rely so strongly on the Westminster government and also their intimate connection with our own kind of mm. offshore island, which is, of course, the city of London here in the United Kingdom, continues to facilitate the city of London's position as the world's major financial um, kind of centre. I mean, so just going back to Her Majesty for a second, mm. what role does the UK monarchy play in upholding these colonial commercial continuities is it merely symbolic or is there an active role that crown that crown power 
place. Yeah, I mean, I think that this is the this is the another um, another issue that nearly needs to be unpacked from the kind of symbolic and cultural realm into the actual material. And so often we think about the royal family, we think about, you know, the queen, oh, isn't she sweet? Or we think about, you know, the actual embodied figures of the royal family. She's like primus inter grannies. <laughs> exactly. Do you know what I mean? This like benevolent figure, like you and think that, she's going to bring out like a biscuit tin. Exactly. You know what I mean? And we all watch The Crown, you know, I'm waiting for the next season like everybody else. <laughs> and we enjoy all the drama and the soap opera of the royal family. But I think what's really interesting is we don't often actually talk about this idea of the crown and what the crown is. I mean, to take, you, you watch The Crown, don't you? Of course, I watched the crowd. You used to be the Navarra's royal correspondent. I still am Navarra's royal correspondent because, like, every single brown person in Britain, I'm obsessed with Princess Diana. (laughs) And I also think she was murdered, but that's a story for another day. Maybe for the next season. Um, (laughs) But. I think there's one moment actually in that show which is really interesting where it talks about the potential coup d'etat through Cecil King against the Harold Wilson government. Mm. And people forget that Lord Mountbatten talks about how impossible that would be except through the power of the crown. And that's this one little moment in that series that really talks about the role that the crown plays in the constitutional architecture, not only of the UK, but also all around the world. That there remains this kind of nugget of anti-democratic power that continues to allow the movement of wealth and resources around the world without being able to have to answer to the democratic populace. We can think about the role that, say, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council play in being the final court of appeal for so many territories all around the world. Mm. That, you know, if in basically, ultimately, for places that stretch from the British Virgin Islands to even independent countries like Jamaica, that when you have the final Um, reference to a legal dispute that goes to a set of the Queen's (laughs) handpicked advisors. This is insane. But this is a modern um, kind of democratic structure. And so the Crown continues to play that role, not only in the UK, but also all around the world. So like I do a bit of work with Radio 4 on Moral Maze and it's, you know, British elite opinion formers. And if I talk to any one of them, they'll say that Britain has got the world's most perfect constitution, right? Which if you did A-level politics like me, you'll know is not codified. It's not written down. It's just a series of norms, precedents and a kind of agreement that everyone has to be a good chap. Um, So how does the exporting of British constitutionalism, which is one of the reasons people give for justifying empire, how does that then relate to perhaps some of the uh, financial and commercial corruption that we see in former colonies? Well, I think that we need to recognise that the expansion of the British constitutional system all around the world often led to immediate kind of transfers, trans- transformations and changes in that constitutional system. So almost no other country in the world does have an uncodified mm. and written constitution. So like, this sounds nuts. <laughs> this doesn't really function in that kind of way. Like, it's like, imagine it's like, no, no, I don't have any filing cabinets. It's all up here. <laughs> <laughs> and that the amount of just the kind of ethereal nature that it allows for the constitution to take place. And so when we have issues like um, Boris Johnson trying to prorogue parliament, everyone turns around to each other and is like, is this allowed? Can we do this? Is this is this actually part of our constitutional system? You know, so the constitution isn't like a kind of concrete set of rules, that it's so many of these kind of conventions and unarticulated traditions that people are supposed to abide by. But when people transgress them, everyone's not quite sure of where the line is. And so this kind of architecture of um, 
anti-democratic power is something that can be used not only domestically, and we're starting to see that being used increasingly by someone like a Boris Johnson, who is He's just like, what if I just don't do this? Exactly. Can anything stop me? And then the British constitutional system is like, I'm afraid he's got us there. (laughs) He's willing to push the boundaries and test these limits in the way the previous prime ministers hadn't decided to to actually push it to those levels. And so this um, kind of, I think it really connects back to the earlier conversation we had about you know, empire creating the structure of Britain on this kind of constitutional basis, that the result of the fallout from empire, people would logically think would be a kind of national conversation about, well, what kind of nation state system do we want to have? You know, questions around the devolution of power, questions around the idea of a codified constitution, questions around things like human rights. All of this stuff could have happened in that 1950s, 1960s era. Instead, they were just like rivers of blood. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When, you know, someone like David Egerton, the historian, talks about Britain that is in the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, being another new nation that comes out of this global empire, just in the same way that Nigeria and Jamaica and Barbados come out as new as new as new nation states. But because we've tried to ignore and, you know, deny and deflect this whole history of decolonization, this world-changing event that happened in the 20th century that Britain was the main character Mm. of and never wants to speak about, we haven't had that reformation of our constitutional system. And we kind of have this zombie constitution that is dealing with things like the fragmentation of the different nations of the United Kingdom or the exercise of royal prerogative power by a kind of, you know... um, unmoral prime minister (laughs) um we're dealing with that on a kind of case-by-case basis i mean it it feels like an emperor's new clothes moment whenever i hear one of these kind of like i said elite radio four opinion formers talk about well you know the british constitutional tradition i'm like it doesn't exist (laughs) how come all of you guys can see this thing which isn't written down and it's something that you know individuals um i think who are trying to understand where sovereignty has gone within the United Kingdom. You know, this is um, a giant part of the debate around Brexit that was that was, that was excellent. A lot of it might have been around, there's mm. a lot of brown people around <laughs> the moment, but a lot of it was also around this idea that there doesn't seem to be a vehicle through which I can exercise democratic control. I don't seem to be able to have the choice to be able to have a different kind of relationship around um the free freedom that corporations have within our particular jurisdiction. Mm. I don't be I don't seem to have the the vehicle through which to be able to challenge things like the non-dom rule that allow people to be able to own huge amounts of property in cities like London without having to declare who owns them or where they're from. Um, and so all of these parts of Britain's economic system seem to be protected in case, as I said previously mm. again, from democratic control. And that has a lot to do with the way in which the British constitutional system has been arranged. I mean, just then taking that into a discussion of racism and anti-immigrant sentiment, you know, I referenced Enoch Powell's Rivers of Blood speech. Instead of having a discussion about what kind of nation Britain wants to be democratically, Enoch mm. Powell was like, a white one. <laughs> like, that'll do just fine. Yeah. So do you think that the way in which we in this country have decided that 
establishing national sovereignty is all about the border mm. and demographics mm. and immigration, that that is almost like the consolation prize for not being able to get a grip on how our democracy actually works or how capital moves around. The consolation prize and also the distraction, I think, mm. you know, that this is what um, the kind of conservative Brexit politicians who really wanted to channel the anger about you know, lack of democratic control, lack of ability to intervene in the kind of erosion of living standards that have happened in the United Kingdom over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, people can feel the squeeze of the living standards. People can feel mm. their inability to make an intervention in this kind of unassailable realm of global capitalism. And that was redirected towards, well, maybe it's you know, the brown person who's next door to you fault. Maybe Hello. it's, you know, maybe it's, you know, the European Union's fault. And, you know, the European Union plays a role in the certain protection of, of, of global capitalism, but so does the British imperial history. So does the city of London. So does London Commercial Court. You know, so does London's, you know, property market, which is essentially a kind of, you know, foreign bank account for, um, you know, wealthy oligarchs all around the world. You know, all of these things have a huge impact on people's day-to-day -day lives. But in order to not make an intervention on that, there was this redirection into anger against migrant populations mm. and against, you know, people who are lower down the economic kind of ladder. And I think what's even worse than that is that the consequences of Brexit is seems to accelerate that levels of inequality and that level mm. of encasement of wealth from the everyday people. So not only was it a distraction, it's a distraction that makes the problem worse. I mean, one of the promises of Brexit was to turn the UK into Singapore. Mm. You know, Daniel Hannan, who was a leading Brexiteer, talked about the ways in which uh, Singapore had clearly surpassed the, you know, the old colonial powers. Mm. So how did Singapore become the only good ex-colony? <laughs> What happened there? Yeah, um, I think that this is a really interesting kind of narrative. And we saw this with Brexit, with the way in which the Singapore on Thames rhetoric started to be spread around. And the point of the Singapore on Thames rhetoric, I think it's important to separate the reality of what happened to Singapore in the kind of post-colonial moment with what Singapore on Thames wanted to present to the British because public. Because the, the image of Singapore is it's clean, mm -hmm. it's orderly, yeah. it's modern, it's yeah. forward-thinking. And there's yeah. an implicit contrast with yeah. all the other countries which are dirty dysfunctional uncivilized uncivilized absolutely and the idea that this um kind of progression that emerged through singapore came simply because of a um opening up to the interests of multinational capital so towards you know low taxes encouragement of foreign investments a elevation of a kind of commercial center, all the things that Raja Ratnam and Lee Kuan Yew kind of just do implement in Singapore, but also implement huge amounts of kind of state investment, huge amounts of state control over parts of the economy. And this part of the story gets ignored by the Brexiteers. They don't talk about this element mm. about it. They also don't talk about the kind of authoritarian element that we also see within Singapore in terms of the, the way in which, um, you know, human rights and personal freedoms are policed. What they wanted to do was to take a particular romanticized narrative of Singapore and use that as justification for opening up the UK to the interests of foreign capital, so to lower labor rights, to um, weaken tax obligations, and to implement this much more Wild West vision of capitalism, which, um, in my opinion, would lead to 
the lowering of living standards and greater levels of inequality and insecurity for everyday people all across the country. Mm. I mean, so let's maybe talk about how this idea of like corporate Singapore actually goes right back Mm -hmm. to the very moment at which it becomes involved with British Empire. Can you just maybe tell the audience who Stanford Raffles was? Because I didn't know any of this before I read your book and then it completely blew my fucking mind. Well, I think, you know, it's part of that story of what I was saying a little bit earlier of so much of the empire was facilitated, accumulated and expanded by corporate interests rather than this kind of clash of nations vision that we often have of empire. So we think of people like Stafford Raffles who talks about the, um, he was a clerk in the East India Company primarily first and then who decided on a kind of, I guess what you could, what you could consider a rogue um, you know, rogue, rogue, rogue commercial enterprise to try and establish like a rogue trader. A rogue trader, exactly <laughs> as would happen. You know, a couple of centuries later, with another Englishman in Singapore, with Nick Leeson, um, Stafford Raffles kind of leads that by um, deciding that it's important that Britain has a um, place within the arena of um, kind of Dutch rule within this particular part of the world. And so he sees the island of Singapore as an opportunity where Britain could kind of establish this control. So he goes over, he meets the local people who are there, and um, he tries to arrange a, um, you know, a, a kind of treaty with them. But fortunately, they'd already, the person who was the chief already had a treaty with the Dutch. And so he simply decided that his brother should actually be the chief, and then just <laughs> arranges a relationship with his brother, and therefore starts to declare that as part of Britain. This is like something out of succession, except involved a whole country. (laughs) Exactly. And, you know, this is the kind of way in which a lot of um, British control gets expanded around the world. It's not simply through um, kind of the Royal Navy and military generals and this kind of clash of nations. It's through um, private corporate greed, looking for opportunities to claim property, claim territory and claim resources from local people. It's through contracts. It's through, you know, tax arrangements. It's through all the kind of boring bureaucratic elements of private capital. And this is the element that I try and say in the book has survived in many different forms, the end of the transfer of sovereignty and the end of empire. So this is an idea of empire, which is like a series of hostile corporate takeovers. Exactly. A series of hostile corporate takeovers that do have devastating human impacts. Like I don't want to minimize the Mm. kind of, you know, the famines and the massacres, you know, and this is the part of empire that we do need to wrestle with when we're discussing this. I think that the kind of recent response to increasing interests around empire and decolonization, this attempt to try and bracket it off with, you know, snowflake students Mm. and, um, you know, um, microaggressions and cancel culture. Mm. Like, I think, you know, people were legitimately cancelled during the British (laughs) Imperial Project. Like, there were, like, whole languages and, like, communities of people that, like, do no longer exist because of Imperial Project. Like, that was the cancel culture that comes with the violence of this kind of corporate architecture. And so, you know, we do have, you know, entities like the East India Company that had a kind of private army that was larger than the British army at that time. We do have these entities that function basically as kind of de facto governments, but they've been able to be protected from the kind of national narrative because they're seen as private entities. And what I try and do in this book is bring that back a little bit more. But I mean, thinking about this moment of, you know, roads must fall and BLM and these series of confrontations with our culture, how it was shaped by colonialism, Mm -hmm. what we 
celebrate. I mean, the Raffles Hotel, which is like a super duper fancy <laughs> hotel, is like named after yeah. essentially a white collar criminal. <laughs> and the minute you look at it through that lens, you suddenly go, but we don't have like Bernie Madoff Square. Charles we, Ponzi. <laughs> like, you know, Charles <laughs> Ponzi yeah. Tavern. Yeah. Um, the, the way in which our history launders mm -hmm. these crimes mm -hmm. and makes it a part of almost our, our everyday you know, environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that this, the way in which the response to the death of George Floyd led to this kind of confrontation with the imperial legacy of our public spaces in Britain, you know, is significant. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's not immediately obvious that that should be the response of, you know, the death of a black man in Minneapolis leading to this confrontation with, you know, slave statues in London and Bristol. But it clearly was a kind of opening for a long overdue conversation. And I think that it is significant that, the, you know, there's been the removal of the Colson statue and Robin Mulligan statue, and there's been changes of, you know, building names, and there's been, you know, engagements of decolonization mm. with museums and art galleries. But what I try and talk about in this book is, there's another legacy of empire that remains present. You know, empire wasn't a global statue building project. Like that wasn't what it was about. <laughs> the main it? thing wasn't to make people feel racially <laughs> exactly, inferior. Like exactly. we're here to make you feel bad about yourself exactly. and your culture. No, you know what I mean? Like there's other legacies of empire. There's other, um, you know, uh, kind of anchors that facilitated that transfer of wealth across the world that do persist to this day. So thinking about, you know, why are the... Um, you know, top three tax havens in the world, according to the Tax Justice Network, the result of British overseas territories, you mm. know, currently British overseas territories. You know, that's part of this. We should have that conversation about the British imperial legacy. You know, when we think about, you know, the role that London Commercial Court and the fact that, you know, 70% of its cases are actually overseas cases and it continues to be this kind of, you know, epicenter of capitalist trade across the world, you know, we need to have that kind of conversation around the legacy of British empire. And I think that what's important about having that conversation is that it makes it much e harder for the people who profit from the aftermath of empire to present themselves as the defenders of the British people. Because outsourcing, you mm. know, tax havens, you know, commercial enterprise is not popular with the everyday people. Like, you know, no one's like, you know, let's defend all of these companies who received contracts during the COVID-19 crisis and then moved all their profits into offshore territories. And so by bringing that conversation back, I think that we allow ourselves to connect the recent conversation we've had about the way that race kind of informs the history of empire with the way in which it informs the background, the, the kind of material st struggles that people are wrestling with on this everyday basis. I mean, I want to then loop back to where we started, which is the way in which if you are in any major British city, you will see that the illicit economy, the economy of violence, the mm. economy of asset stripping is deeply interwoven with the so-called legitimate economy. Mm. And coming back to, to that point, mm. how does anyone begin to get a grip on it just the ordinary person yeah. how do you sort of sit in the middle of everything and go i can begin to do something mm. well, i think it's about engaging with this history on the basis that it's not something that is just something that you might take an interest in because you know you want to be a good person or because you know it's, i don't want to be a good person i don't never know you know <laughs> or that you want to um take an interest in how the legacy of empire impacts 
you know, countries in sub-Saharan Africa or impacts countries, you know, in the Caribbean. But because you recognize that this is the building blocks for the system of capitalism that influences your life today. Mm. And so reading something like, you know, the Anglo-Iranian oil company with a connection to the way in which BP influences the way that people are looking at their bills today. Reading the histories of, you know, decolonization in places like Kenya and um, Rhodesia, which led to huge amounts of um, settlers over there, you know, taking their wealth and fleeing to places like the Cayman Islands, places like the British Virgin Islands, you know, people like Vanessa Ogle, the historian's fantastic on really mapping that process out and recognizing that, that establishment of that offshore world is what leads to the impossibility for Vodafone and Goldman Sachs and all of these other places to be taxed adequately when we think about the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. It's to really think about how did the world of assets become encased from the world of people? This mm. is part of the aftermath of the British Empire. And, you know, we've all just been through a pandemic where, you know, people have suffered immensely. People have been stuck at home. People haven't been able to work. And what's happened with the kind of sphere of assets? Everything's gone up. Mm. You know, stocks have gone up. Properties got up. Everything seems to be completely insulated from what people are going through in their everyday life. And so Britain has an outsized role in that encasing of, asset, of the world of assets from everyday people. And I think once that conversation starts to be made more um, passionately in the British political discussion, then we can start to see politicians engage with this legacy of empire on that more material basis. So to sum up, expropriate. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And also to recognise that like, if you read about things like expropriating in the global south against something like Anglo-Iranian oil company, mm. that is often presented to us as something that you should feel like, I should support the Anglo-Iranian oil company here because that's what British people do. And it's like, they're not going to support you. Like, I'll tell you <laughs> that for now. So maybe thinking about, you know, the histories of um, that kind of initial decolonization moment, the reading of people like Michael Manley and Kwame mm. Nkrumah and Mohammed Mozadek as providing resources, not just to understand the condition of people in the global South, but also providing resources that could be useful and influential for how we might challenge the future of capitalism, even here in the United Kingdom. Well, Dr. Karam, thank you very much for joining us today. And also, if you haven't ordered this book already, you really should. Thank you. Awesome. This broadcast is brought to you by Novara Media. Go to novaramedia.com slash support.